Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, friends. This is the Renaissance English History Podcast, and I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And I am releasing today, um, it's a recording that I did with Tony Riches a couple of years ago when he had a new book out on Drake. Um, and Tony's just such a joy to speak with. He um, He's always up for coming onto the podcast and talking about things and being part of whatever kind of crazy shenanigans we get up to over here in this part of the Tudor internet. And uh, I wanted to release this because Tony's actually giving away a copy of one of his eBooks to people who come to TudorCon. Um, the streaming tickets are available. Of course, I talked about that last time, but I'm going to tell you about it again because I can. Um, so TudorCon is happening September 9th through 11th in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it's too late to get tickets to come in person. I know you're hugely disappointed. Um, that's not possible at this point. However, you can come thanks to the magic of the interwebs um, from the comfort of your own home. So we have this streaming ticket. It's only $24 um, and you get to be part of it. You get to be in a Zoom room with your other streaming attendees. It's all going to be recorded so you can go back and watch at your leisure. Um, you get to see all the entertainment. You get to participate in the contests. You get to watch all of the talks. Uh, even we'll be monitoring the chat. So when it's time to ask questions at the end of the talks, you can ask questions um, with the chat. There's actually a very special musical opportunity. Um, there's a a musical on Saturday evening. While the people who are attending in person are going to have time at the Renaissance Fair, you streaming attendees get a very special tutor musical opportunity to watch uh, on a, a private a private link that we have. Um, so you can read all about that on the website, and you also get a digital swag bag, which leads me back to Tony Riches because he is uh, very generously giving a copy of one of his books, Owen, to the digital swag bag. There's all kinds of stuff in there, all kinds of lovely goodies. So you can learn more and get your ticket, englandcast.com slash tutorconline. 
or you can just go to englandcast.com. There's a big old pop-up. When you go to englandcast.com, like any page, it's going to pop up and, and direct you. Um, so englandcast.com slash online or just englandcast.com and then click the pop-up and you will um, be able to learn more about the streaming ticket. Also, like I said, everything's going to be recorded. So if you can't attend live, that's fine. We'll have the links up within a couple of days after. Um, and so you will be able to watch at your leisure. We've got some amazing speakers. I'm so proud. Every year we get such great speakers. Um, and it, it's going to be a really great time. So check out all the speakers. We've got talks on tutor patents and tutor food and all kinds of like tutor lawyerly stuff and all kinds of cool stuff. So it's just going to be a tutorific weekend and it's going to be amazing. It always is amazing. I always like get really mad at myself for doing it sometime around March. It's like I already signed up to do it. The next year's dates are going to be September 8th through 10th. You can't buy tickets yet. You'll be able to, you'll be able to after this next TutorCon. Um, so on September 11th, I guess on the Sunday, I'll make the tickets available for next year. But anyway, September 8th through 10th is next year. I already booked it. I signed it up, reserved it, all of that. And I'm like really excited about it now. And I also know that like come February, March, I'm going to be really mad at myself because the, the work's going to start kicking in and I'm going to be like, oh my gosh, why did I sign up for this? And then summer rolls around and I start getting into like full planning mode and people are getting excited and people are talking about their travel plans and all the new people I'm going to meet. It's so much fun. Um, and then I'm really happy about it. So I'm in that stage right now where I'm really happy about it. I'm really glad I did it. I hope you can be part of it through the magic of the streaming, uh, englandcast.com slash tutorcon. Sorry, my microphone just went funny. Englandcast.com slash tutorcon online to get your ticket. And hey, it's $24. And I know that's not nothing, but I have to say it's actually cheaper than the 2020 tutorcon ticket was which was also all online because it was 2020 and everything was online in 2020. Um, and I wanted to do that specifically because like everything else in the world is getting more expensive. And I thought, here's one thing that I can make less expensive. So for $24, you get the whole three day event and the digital swag bag with all kinds of cool stuff in it. Um, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. So I hope that, you know, when you think about where you could spend $24. I think this is a pretty awesome place to do it and it's going to leave you with more memories. I don't know. <laughs> you could buy another t-shirt or something or a sweater or a pair of jeans, or you could like deepen your tutor knowledge. So, you know, you choose. Englandcast.com slash tutorcon online. All right. I'm going to just hop right into Tony. We did a few things because um, my wife and I joined a group and we, we managed to get a life-size statue of Henry put up in front of the castle, which means that nobody can be in any doubt now. But also I had the idea for the Tudor trilogy that Henry would be born in the first book and then um, come of age, if you like, in the second book and uh, become king in the third book. And while I was writing the third book, um, I, I decided that uh, the story of his young daughter, Mary, who was just a, a little girl, who was kind of nursing him in his last month, was just such a fascinating story, the way that um, her little brother, also called Henry, 
promptly married her off to the ailing king of France. And she just seemed to go along with it, which I suppose she didn't have any choice. And that got me looking quite closely at this chap, Charles Brandon, and who I only knew from the Tudors television series, if I'm perfectly honest. And we went and visited his house in West Thorpe and his tomb in St. George's Chapel in um, Windsor Castle. And I got to know them really well. And then his last wife, after Mary died, was his ward, his 14-year-old ward, um, Catherine Willoughby. And of course, her story, I, I hardly knew anything about Catherine Willoughby at all. And her story was even more fascinating because she was the, the, the spokesperson for the Protestant cause at the time when Queen Mary came to the throne. And uh, that was nearly disaster for the whole family. And she had to escape to exile. And um, that whole story was fascinating to research and write. I didn't manage to follow all her footsteps in exile, but that took me up to the coronation of Elizabeth I. So it was quite easy to decide what to do next. It was an Elizabethan trilogy. The only trouble is I started trying to decide which of the Elizabethans to do. Because rather than write about Elizabeth directly, I wanted to show all the different facets of her strange personality through the eyes of her favourite, I decided to. And uh, it was fairly easy to start with Drake, because as a boy I'd been in Plymouth and I knew the statue of Drake. But uh, what I found was almost everything I was taught at school about France Drake was actually wrong, um, including his famous game of bowls, as the Armada is cited, and that he single-handedly defeated the Armada. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was all um, Victorian sort of um, hero-making. And when you look at the actual story, it's quite a different story. You get a picture of this rather insecure man with a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he was from really common stock. His father was a farmer and then a preacher, but um, he certainly wasn't a noble, and Drake would have loved to have been a noble, and the nobility, of course, never accept a commoner as one of them, never, not, not for any reason, and even when he was knighted, they still looked down their noses at him, and he went to his grave um, wondering how he could ever get round that problem. So that's where it started. And I'm now writing about a, a chap that suddenly appeared halfway through writing Drake. Um, he was about to set sail, and this young chap came charging down on a horse from London, stole one of his ships, and sailed off into the sunset. And he, he said, well, what, what's going on? And it was Robert Devereux, and when he eventually, Earl of Essex, and when he eventually caught up with Devereux, he said, um, what's, you know, why, why did you steal one of my ships? And he said, well, I asked the Queen's permission to sail with you. And she said, absolutely not, under any circumstances. So I stole a horse and rushed to Plymouth and stole a ship. And I thought, this is just such a character. Um, I know other books have been written about him, but I'm going right from his boyhood days when his father was poisoned um, in, in um, Ireland. He was Essex, he was Walter Devereux, the Earl of Essex. And he was poisoned mysteriously during a meal. First of all, his servant died, and then 
he fell down and died, leaving his family um, bereft, you know, and without any money, he was in debt. So how Robert Devereux went from there is, is quite an interesting story to write. But the thing is, while I was doing that, I started to get interested in Elizabeth's ladies at court. And there's such a fascinating bunch. I, I couldn't choose between them which one might be book three. And um, so I've decided to make it an Elizabethan series and do three men and three ladies. So um, the third man is going to be Walter Raleigh, who was another hero of mine when I was at school. And I'll be interested to see um, how wrong I was taught about him as well. And then um, I'm looking forward to doing the three ladies. But of course, the research has a lot of crossover because um, they, they all lived at the same time in the same places. So it's quite handy for me. I can go to somewhere like the Tower of London and research several books at once. Um, and you personally sail. So did you feel a connection? Well, that's, that's right. Um, we've been caught in a storm where we had a um, 25 foot high wave. It was known as the Boscastle storm um, because the village of Boscastle in North Devon was completely um, crashed as a result of it. And all the boats that were in the harbour ended up on the Welsh coast. And we were actually at sea at the time. And so it was only because we had a very good boat that we survived that. Um, but it, it turned out to be a handy experience because when I was writing about Drake in a storm in Golden Hind, um, I could very much envisage what, what it might have felt like. Yeah. Um, I, that sounds petrifying, and I'm glad that you survived it, and I'm also glad that you had that experience. Yeah, that's that's absolutely yeah. terrible. But, but we didn't. Made it safely back. Yeah. I'm having nightmares of like the movie, what, A Perfect Storm or all of yeah, those different. That's it was a bit like that. Sometimes the, the mast was uh, 40 feet high, so we could measure the height of the wave against the mast, and we could see that the waves were at least 25 feet. Um, and it was like sailing into a wall of water, but you have to hold your nerve because if you turn sideways on, it might, might broke you then. So you have to go straight into the wave with the pointy end of the boat and uh, just hope for the best. Yeah, I'm better you than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about what Plymouth was like, because um, much of your book is set in Plymouth. Tell me about yeah. Plymouth. It, it's, a, it, it's fascinating. There's so much I've learned about Plymouth. Unfortunately, because of the lockdown, um, I haven't been able to visit Drake's house in Plymouth, but I went in on um, Google Earth and I was able to pinpoint his house. Um, and I realized then something which none of his biographers seems to have picked up on, that from his house, you could see the harbor in Plymouth. And um, although it was in like the row of houses, his particular house had a, an open parkland in front of it which gave him a view of all the ships coming and going, which makes sense, doesn't it? When you know that, you can see why he would have chosen that house, because he was a millionaire. He could have any house he wanted, but he chose to live in Plymouth and to have a little office in the dock when he could have been 
um, anywhere he wanted in the world, really. So you mentioned about how he came from um, a father who was a preacher. How did he become a sailor? Well, sailing was in their blood because they lived at Chatham Dockyard in Kent. And so his father used to preach to the sailors, you see, on all the ships. And the Drake was the eldest of 12 brothers. That must have been quite a family. Most of his brothers seem to feature in the book at some point or other. A lot of them crop up because they all tried to cash in on his success, you see. And um, it, it was one of the things that you did was you either, you either joined the church or went to sea. There weren't a lot of choices. Um, you, couldn't be a, you could be a tenant farmer, but Drake wanted to make his fortune. And he actually became a, like an apprentice on a, a channel pilot ship. It wasn't really a ship. It was, you've probably seen pilot boats. They're really quite small, but they're, they're captained by people that know all the dangers of the area. And um, the skipper of the, of the boat, um, when he died, he left Drake the boat in his will. And he, he presumably thought Drake would just carry on the tradition and spend the rest of his life piloting ships across the channel. But he promptly sold it and then um, used the money to um, buy a fancy sort of set, set of new clothes and try and pass himself off as an experienced sailor down in Plymouth, when in fact he'd never been further than the Bay of Biscay. Uh, yeah. But uh, he. I think he kind of gave the impression that he'd served his time before the mast, you know? Uh, you and, have him in the book saying that he's related to Hawkins and it's kind of well, a little bit... It's, it's interesting because they, they all claim to be all related to each other. And in fact, bearing in mind the, the small families, and you know, the, the, the smaller numbers of families in a town uh, than you get these days, um, there was a lot of sort of second and third cousins and things like that. And they used to use that as a foot in the door. Uh, but the real Drake nobility were furious when he tried to um, take their um, coat of arms, this is his own, couldn't have any of it, you know. <laughs> so so uh, he wasn't that closely related to um, everybody. And it, a few times he kind of admits uh, there's a bit of a tenuous link. Um, but if you look back through family trees, they are all connected in some way or other. Hmm. Sure. Um, and with the Hawkins, he had throughout the book, he has kind of a, there's a tense relationship with them. What can you tell me about? It's, it's strange because the two brothers um, were like chalk and cheese, really. And uh, John Hawkins, of course, was a notorious slave trader. Um, but he had a, um, a very old-fashioned set of values. So he was very much one to lead from the front and not to ask his men to do anything he wouldn't do himself and all those kind of things. And it's so hard to not apply modern standards to that and to re keep reminding yourself about the context of the time where slavery was uh, a new thing and um, nobody really seemed that troubled by it. Well, Drake was troubled by it. And right. He actually yeah. about that. And he, he turned that concern to his advantage in, in quite a spectacular way. 
by forming an alliance with the Cimmerans, who were the escaped slaves, that could have um, either murdered him or handed him to the Spanish as a ransom, you know, for, for a reward. Instead, uh, they were the making of him because it was through the Cimmerans that he managed to understand how to survive in the Panamanian jungle and how to hijack the mule trains that brought the silver across. And um, of course, nobody expected him to do that. They just thought they would patrol the seas and that would do the job. They never thought anybody would head off across land. And um, as you know, the geography of Panama is quite curious. That's why they built the Panama Canal there, because it gets very narrow in the middle. So you can actually walk across. If you've got the nerve to do it. You can walk across from the West Indies to the Southern Ocean. Um, which we now call the Pacific, but at the time it was generally known of as the Southern Sea or the Southern Ocean. And there's a story about how Drake and John Oxenham climbed a particularly high tree and could see both oceans. Now, I'd love to do that and see if it's possible <laughs> after the lockdown, perhaps. But um, it's a nice idea that you can see both both oceans. And of course, the Southern Ocean was like um, El Dorado to them, because it was where the Spanish gold was all coming from, and silver and diamonds and jewels. So it was just beyond their wildest dreams, literally. But how could they get there? That was the problem, because nobody had ever done it and survived, even Magellan. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, how were the Spanish do it? They just had the experience of you talked about kind of when he was going down across the on the trip and i'm skipping ahead here in time but um they would patrol that area tierra del fuego and they just were kind of used to it then by that point oh. yeah so that it was uh, their most closely guarded secret um but fortunately for drake uh, he was a, a kind of amateur cartographer and liked to draw his own map and sketch all the different coastlines and harbors and reefs and things islands as he as he went along sadly a lot of that was presented to queen elizabeth and um has been lost so we live in hope that one day an archivist will open an old chest you know and there will be all drake notes um so most of what we see today are copies drawn from memory by other people, perhaps even 20 years afterwards. But still, we do have his letters and his journals and logs and all of that kind of thing. And Magellan, Ferdinand Magellan, actually documented his voyage through the Strait, what we know as the Strait of Magellan. And so Drake was able to rely on that and his own um, map to, to actually find the secret route. But when they emerged at the other end, of course, they emerged into the worst storms that anybody had ever seen in their life, uh, so bad uh, that the only ship that survived that was the Golden Hind, which started life as Pelican and then became the Golden Hind. And um, worryingly for Drake, um, some of the other ships turned back. He wasn't sure whether they'd been captured by the Spanish and would tell Spanish where he was, or whether they go back to England and saying bad news, it's all gone horribly wrong, 
is that he wasn't there to defend his good name, you see. And um, there was trouble on that voyage earlier on. Very much so. Yeah, and he had to have a trial at the same place where Magellan had had a trial. There was, a, there was a, few, a few things I had to deal with, which I didn't have any idea when I started how on earth I was going to deal with it. And then I stumbled across this curious reference that Drake's first wife, Mary, Mary Newman, was a, a, a fairly ordinary Plymouth girl and on the face of it, an ideal wife for a, an ambitious young sailor because her own father had been a sea captain and her brother was a sailor. So they were all from the same kind of background. And then there was this reference to um, something going on um, between uh, his wife and um, another member of the crew, another of his captains. <laughs> I'm torn here between giving the whole plot away or not. But, but, but Drake, um, the last thing he needed was a mutiny on his hands. And that's exactly what was brewing, was a full-blown mutiny. and. It's really curious about how history repeats itself because um, Magellan had exactly the same problem and the way he dealt with it was that he hung the mutineers <laughs> at this particular place and uh, Drake found himself at that specific place reading Magellan's notes uh, mm -hmm. when he was wondering how to deal with the mutiny. I find that fascinating um, and curious as well. And I, I believe that he regretted his decision for the rest of his life. I don't think it ever sat comfortably with him. And as he sailed back, he had two big worries on his mind. The first was, is Queen Elizabeth still alive or has she been replaced by somebody else who might not take kindly to me? And secondly, um, are there going to be consequences for what I've done? And uh, so that was quite interesting. And the first, before he even set foot ashore, he, he hailed another boat as they approached Plymouth and said, um, is the Queen still living? And they said, yeah, the Queen's still living, but we're all dying of the plague. So that's quite interesting now, isn't it? Because that's the same kind of answer you'd get if you went into Plymouth now. Funny. Um, I'm looking through my notes and I have, highlighted a description and it's just really innocuous it's just kind of in here and i want you to elaborate on what it was like for people sailing at this time because you have a savage seahorse with huge tusks as large as a grown bull reared from the water with a roar tell me about that well i could tell you that um i i was a child in kenya and i grew up um thinking it was perfectly normal to visit um, Lake Nakuru and see hippos. And um, uh, on our wedding anniversary, my wife and I went back to Kenya and we went out on the lake in a very small skiff with a uh, Kenyan at the helm. And uh, there were hippos there with little babies. And one of, the, one of the hippos reared out of the water quite viciously as we approached. And I said to him, Do do they ever attack? Thinking he would say, no, don't be silly, they're, they're tame, they're like puppy dogs. You know? And he said, yeah, they do attack. <laughs> and the, we had about six inches of freeboard in this little boat. 
And uh, I said, what do you do if they're attacking? He says, oh, gun the, gun the engine and get back as fast as we can. So I, I wouldn't recommend a trip on Lake Nakura if, if you fancy it. But what Drake's crewmen encountered, of course, was the first hippo that anybody from England had ever seen. And so they, they could only describe it as a, a sea monster because um, you know, it was actually in the river estuary and it must have been terrifying because it actually um, sank the little dinghy that they were in. So they weren't so lucky as we were in Kenya. And um, it, the same with the um, llamas, they called them the long neck chief because they'd never even heard of a llama. They'd never seen a llama, but it, they could relate it to the yeah. sheep they knew of. And wasn't the penguin was, I feel like I read, I remember it was Welsh. Right, whiteheads, penguin. Right. Yeah. Yes, right. And it's, they find it fascinating that, that because it was the Welshman who, who dubbed them that name in the crew, and that's documented, and that that survived to this day, but nobody ever thinks of it, nobody ever realizes. But um, they weren't exactly environmentalists because when they found an island densely populated with penguins, they killed every last one of them and put them in the hole, um, and rubbed their hands together because they thought we'll have penguins to eat for the rest of the voyage. Right. Um, so they were easy to catch. I didn't want to make too much of it uh, in the book because of some people's sensitivities, but that's quite a, uh, a vicious way of, of traveling around the world, really, isn't it? Yeah. Is to literally exploit any natural resource you come to they couldn't possibly carry enough food or water yeah no i yeah it's, it's hard to read the early stories even with settlers in america and the bison and and all of yeah. them they just shot them all didn't they they for sport they would shoot as many as they could until they run out of ammunition different uh different sensibilities thank goodness we hopefully one would think we evolve although it's not always clear um speaking of different sensibilities i wanted to ask what it was like for you writing about the early his voyage that he was on when there was slaves like how how was that for you writing about that it, it, isn't it interesting how quickly things can change because um obviously i was sensitive to um the issues around slavery and the callous way that um john hawkins would if he couldn't sell his slaves, he'd just put them ashore wherever and hope, well, not even hope for the best, never give them a second thought, really. So that happened all of the time, really. And I was pleased to find in Drake's journals that it really troubled him and that he got a bit of a reputation for going the extra distance to worry about the welfare of slaves and try and get them spread out amongst different ships when everybody else thought that was just a waste of everybody's time, you know? And um, of course, whenever he caught any Spanish ship with slave support, he freed them and he gave them the choice of either joining his crew, which was quite a good option because they'd have a share of the profits then, uh, or um, to be put ashore when it was possible. And he gave them food and money. Um, some of them he gave like bags of silver to stolen Spanish silver, but he did really do his best to look after them. 
as far as he could. And Diego um, is a fascinating character because um, he became Drake's the son he never had, his best friend, and literally gave his life to save Drake's. And that is documented from half a dozen different um, contemporary accounts uh, that it's not, uh, in fact, I didn't have to make anything up at all. <laughs> this is one of those books where it's a case of not what do I uh, have to make up to, to add depth to it, uh, but what, do, what can I leave out without losing, without, you know, and still give a fair picture. Um, no, that I, I, I thought that was very redeeming of him when, uh, when I first started reading it and there was that part was very uncomfortable to read, but then seeing him kind of speaking up against it and doing the things that he could, all right, he's okay then for the time. Um, <laughs> After yeah. I sent the book to my editor, uh, we had the Black Lives Matter campaign, and then there was talk about pulling down Drake statue in Plymouth and throwing it in the sea. And I, I agonized about whether to campaign on his behalf that um, what well, I've just told you that he actually was way ahead of his time, really. And um, people should look at it and take a balanced view. And um, all of that happened in the in the short time between finishing the first draft and sending it off to my editor and then getting it back. And when I re-read it through, I didn't change anything. I left it exactly as it was, because there was no need to change anything. People can make their own judgment. And yeah. um, I think that's the best way. Definitely. Um, yeah, so I also then want to skip ahead to once he's successful and he's El Draco, um, because I live very close, close to Cadiz. And I would like, you. And I would like for you to talk a little bit about Cadiz in the time that we have left. Yeah, because uh, I'm going to be writing that about that again because Robert Devereux um, was one of the heroes of Cadiz. But can you imagine the scene that the Spanish, because the, the, the story I was taught at school was that the Spanish Armada was so vanquished that nothing made its way back to Spain. Nothing survived. And that's not true at all. Half the fleet survived. And it was in good enough shape that it could be um, fairly quickly rebuilt. They were very good at doing that. And, um, you know, a lot of the crewmen were still aboard. And they were all in Cadiz um, preparing for another armada. The last thing they expected was an English armada. I never even knew there was an English armada. <laughs> you know, they talk about the Spanish armada, but an English armada appears out of nowhere. Um, completely ignoring the battery on the on the headland, which was taking pot shots at them all of the time. So at any time they could be killed. And um, they just went in in amongst the Spanish ship, uh, firing from both sides at point blank range, really. Reckless, absolutely reckless. And um, one of Drake's captains was horrified at the, their tactics and withdrew. And he tried to court martial him for cowardice, you know. And um, another of his crewmen um, was, was killed. And he saw that as sort of um, collateral damage, really. So it, he'd become quite ruthless by that point. And part of the reason is that 
so many people that he'd known had been tortured by the Inquisition and burnt at the stake in, in public square and things like that, horrific stories, or um, somebody like John Oxenham was kept alive until the age of 80 and paraded through the streets as an example to others, um, which is awful, isn't it, in chains. And he was a young man when he was caught, an ambitious young um, adventurer. And, uh, you know, so if you put all of that together, you can kind of understand that Drake had quite a grudge. And then you add to that um, Queen Elizabeth um, blatantly encouraging him. And, and as he walks out the door, it, she'll say something like, but don't, don't let anybody know that it was my idea. You know, <laughs> I'll deny it all. Which she did, of course, even with Mary, Queen of Scots. She, she denied it all, even though she signed the death warrant. So she wanted to have it both ways. It took a lot of political skill for her to walk that line, though, didn't it? Very much so. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been to Cadiz a couple of times. And I always try and imagine running around and, and they took the town like completely. Yeah. Broke. But it was all that was all. Um, bluster because they couldn't possibly hold it is but they liked the idea of taking and robert Devereux. i feel a bit sorry for robert Devereux because he was sent to take take this take the town and, and hold it an impossible job and when he came back all sort of battered and bleeding but still alive uh they said oh you're back soon you know <laughs> come back a bit soon and Drake was sat there sort of drinking champagne and looking out to see he wasn't um, leading the, the army into Cadiz. It done his bit, of course, because they, they did make sure that there never was another armada uh, attack England um, ever. So that's, that's quite interesting to think about. If they'd not done that, um, would Spain have had another go and applied the experience that they'd got. And one of the things that we only found out too late was there were only about six men guarding the Isle of Wight. Now Drake knew that, and he was praying that the Armada wouldn't use the Isle of Wight as their stronghold. But the Spanish presumed that it was well defended and didn't dare hang around there. And in fact, they could have occupied it um, without a fight because the, the small group of men that were on the beaches at the Isle of Wight would have just surrendered straight away, I think. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, if anybody has any questions for Tony about any of his books um, or Francis Drake, his new book, go ahead and type them in. And um, what, what do you think, like if you had to just have an overall sentence about Francis Drake or a couple of sentences, like what do we need to know that wasn't what you were taught in school um, to understand Francis Drake and his impact on Elizabethan England. <laughs> in just a couple of sentences. He was the first commoner to really become friends with Queen Elizabeth I. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about all day long secret meetings with her now, where nobody knows what they discuss. Um, all the other people that she knew were noble and um, descended from royalty. So Drake was a, a rough sailor, you know? And uh, I think she was intrigued by that. 
What would that have, what was that like for him? Meeting her? He didn't know how to deal with it because he, he asked the Hawkins brothers for advice on how he should conduct himself. And they were useless because they'd never had um, all day long private meetings with the Queen. Um, there was nobody to ask, so he just had to wing it. So he had a brilliant idea of suddenly producing enormous pearls the size of birds' eggs or um, whole chests of gold. And then while she's still looking at the whole chest of gold, he has somebody carry on one that's full of rubies and another one that's full of silver. And this has all actually happened and said, I, I, I can take this if you want, but if you want to hang on to it, that's fine, you know. <laughs> And of course, she was in debt because um, of the wars in Ireland had, had um, really uh, cost, it, cost the, the royal fortune. And single-handedly, really, Drake bailed the country out. And the money that he brought back more than um, wiped out all of the debt. And interestingly, um, laid the way, really, for what then became the British Empire. Now, whether that's a good thing or not is a whole nother debate. Yeah. But it would never have happened if, if the country had continued to be in debt. And now you'll be pleased to hear we're back in debt again. <laughs> so there won't um, be empire, I don't think. <laughs> so there are a couple of questions coming in. Casey says, hi, Tony and Heather. I'm curious who you have found the most fun to write about so far. Oh. Uh, I always enjoy the one that I'm writing at the moment. So I'm really enjoying Robert Devereux because he's such a character. And um, there's so many strange things. Like I suddenly found out that he lived at Lampley Palace, which is a 20 minute drive from my house. And I've been there before. I, know, I had no idea that he lived there. And um, unlike everybody else who was in awe of Queen Elizabeth, Robert Devereux, um, even as a little boy, he backed away when she tried to kiss him and refused to be kissed. And that's kind of set the benchmark for the way he thought of her for the rest of time. And, and of course, that brought out a whole other side of her then, because just the same with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, you know, he, he couldn't believe she was able to resist his charms. Um, Elizabeth couldn't believe that this young um, Earl, because he was an Earl by then, um, Earl of Essex, uh, wasn't totally in awe of her. <laughs> he found that quite entertaining as well. Um, I think over all the books I've written, I've lost count of how many it is now, 13, I think. Them, but um, Owen Tudor was the first one where I really had to do it the hard way because there was so little known about him. That I really had to dig and dig and dig and look through the Welsh journals and translate stuff from Latin. And what a story, you know, that he was the servant of the widowed Queen Catherine of Valois, and that they were thrown together in Windsor Castle. If you've been to Windsor Castle, it's an amazing place. And um, it's kind of amazing that, that that story isn't better known and that there aren't um, better television dramas about it, because out of that, um, liaison came the whole of the Judah dynasty. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, yeah, it's really amazing to think about them, and then that secret wedding, and and oh, yeah. 
So Cindy has a question regarding the experiences of fauna they had never seen. Were there any reports of encounters with those in Panama, such as snakes, spiders, etc., they were not familiar with? Did it have an impact on their progress or, or were they prepared for it? I mentioned earlier on that they never would have survived if it hadn't been for the Cimarans, who were the former slaves that were living in that area and knew the, knew the terrain really well. And they would warn um, Drake and his crew about scorpions and um, certain spiders that had a poisonous bite. Um, but snakes, uh, even today, there's probably snakes there that um, people don't fully understand. So that, that, that was a really good example of how they never would have done anything like that if they hadn't have worked with former slaves and treated them with respect and integrity so that it was a partnership and not just exploiting them. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's really, that's really a good way of looking at it. Um, all right, so people should, to get the whole story on Francis Drake, at least your interpretation of Francis Drake, people should get the book. And where can they, is the book out now? Is it yeah, in pre-order? There it is. It's, okay. it's, out, it's out this month. I did wonder about whether to delay the publication of it until next year, um, as I said earlier on, and because it was released early because of lockdown, because mm. my editor would normally have been available, and uh, she was in lockdown, um, homeschooling her children. So I was able to bring everything forward. Um, so there's one benefit of being locked down at your own house. And I've also written a third of um, Devereaux, which normally I wouldn't have started until this week. So I'm using that early as well. Yeah. The, the book is doing well. It's it's uh, ebook and uh, paperback um, on 13 countries on Amazon. And I've also, for a change, I've put it through the other channels. So it's on all of the um, other things, Kobo and um, I don't normally do that. I normally have them exclusive to Amazon, but I've thrown the net a bit wider this time. Good. So people who have devices other than Kindles can read them. Perfect. All right. Well, you have been very generous with your time and with sharing with us about Francis Drake. And I don't think there's any other questions. So I will just end it by thanking you and i'm gonna go ahead and post this out on my feed then too if that's okay get more people thank listening. you very much for your time all of you and um it's been fun talking about um Greg again he is quite a character uh i didn't get to mention that my wife and i just before the lockdown we actually visited the golden hind in london and had okay. a private tour of the ship and that was amazing it was so small 151 feet long and you couldn't really stand up on the gun deck. And it, it, Drake's cabin was tiny. And um, it made me realize, it was great because I was still writing at the time. And it made me realize what a heroic thing it was to sail right around the world in a small boat, you know. But thank you very much. Can you uh, the replica one that's right there where all the restaurants and bars and all those places? That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. I have a friend who right right around there, and I would walk past there all the time. And oh, it's it. definitely worth the visit. And that ship, that's where I was going to do my launch of Drake. But because of the lockdown, 
Uh, I'm going to do a book signing when it's all over, but um, I recommend a visit to it. It's fascinating, but it's used to educate school children mostly. And um, definitely, it's right next to um, the Southwark um, Cathedral. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a, great views of Tower Bridge, so you can walk yeah. along. So really, really worth a visit. Well, I'd like to come back later yeah. about Robert Devereaux. So um, that's, that's awesome for another day. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much for being here and get the book and enjoy Tony Richards' book. They're fantastic. So we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Tony, for being part of this. Thank you for playing with all of the crazy things we get up to, the shenanigans. Um, you should check out all of Tony's books. If you come to TutorCon, you get the first one for free. So, you know, that starts you off. And I will be back after TutorCon, probably. So, englandcast.com slash TutorCon online if you want to be part of that. Thanks for listening. I will have talks and things to share from TutorCon after the weekend. I will let you know how you can get your tickets for next week, next year in person. Um, but for now, englandcast.com slash TutorCon online to attend the online streaming ticket. It's going to be so much fun. My husband's going to be hosting it. So he's going to be the chief streamer, streamer in chief. Um, so that'll be fun. I just rope everybody in. My mom helps me with the sign-in sheets. My husband's doing the streaming. It's like a whole family little cottage industry sort of thing that we've got going on. Anyway, hopefully I will see you online September 9th. Talk with you soon. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.